Jason, you're supposed to tell them that I'm a lousy preacher and so that they're pleasantly surprised. Not set the bar high. No, I'm just kidding. Man, I love bringing the word, and uh, um, I'm ready to do it today. You ready to go in? All right, let's open your Bible, our Bibles, to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles chapter 29. While you're turning there, I'm going to tell you a quick story. My wife and I were first started in ministry. Uh, we were, had just graduated Bible college. We lived in Springfield, Missouri while we attended Bible college. And we were presented with this opportunity to go back to the church that we were raised in, or at least I was raised in. It was the church that she was saved in. And, uh, and it was an opportunity to become their worship pastor. It was in a part-time role. It didn't pay a ton, but it had one really awesome job perk. Um, and the job perk was that it came with free housing which as a young couple, we were 21 years old, um, and we were, uh, like, that was so enticing. How many people, how many young couples, free housing sounds great right about now? Yeah, right? How many older couples, free housing sounds great? Yeah, that's right. And so that was so enticing to us, but we were living in Springfield, Missouri at the time. The house was in a suburb of Chicago, and so we couldn't necessarily go and see it. It was about eight hours away. And so someone sent us a picture. They sent us a picture of the outside of the house. And it looked like a decent house. It was a fairly good sized. Um, we were pretty stoked about that. It looked like it was, it was decent. And uh, basically the church had the connection with this guy. Uh, his mother had passed away. He lived out of state. And so he was looking to, to rent it for cheap. And he was going to rent it to the church for cheap. And it would be free to us. Um, and the only stipulation was that um, we had to clear out his mom's stuff because he lived out of state and he couldn't come back to kind of clear out his mother's house. So you can kind of see where this is going. So uh, we say yes to it because, you know, we're young and dumb. And we're like, hey, the prospects of free housing is just awesome. And so we move ourselves from Missouri to Chicago. We get to the house. We go inside. And the first thing that we notice is how horrible it smells. I mean, it just hits us right off the bat. And we would have lingered in how bad it smelled um, if, it was, if we didn't move quickly off of the smell to the horror of seeing how much stuff was in the house. Uh, because what we weren't told was that the woman who had passed away was a hoarder. Yeah. And she didn't just hoard things, she neglected things. So everything that she hoarded was infested with mice. It was horribly disgusting. Uh, but you know, we were like, well, it has so much promise. <laughs> Again, did I mention we were young and dumb? We're like, it has so much promise. If we can, you know, uh, clean it up, do some cosmetic changes to it, you know, rip up the shag carpet, we, we can make it work. And the guy was open. He was like, hey, you do whatever you want to do to the house. We're like, we can make this work. And so, uh, you know, we started. We started first by cleaning everything out. We got one of those big dumpsters that goes on the outside, on the curb, you know what I'm talking about, the construction ones. And we just started moving stuff out. And I'm talking like armoires full of mouse droppings. It was like gloves, masks, safety goggles, it was, uh, you know, have you ever seen E.T., you know, the suits at the end? It, I wish I would have had one of those. And, and so we just start moving all this stuff out, and, and it was just mice everywhere and stuff everywhere. My favorite thing that we pulled out was a life-size animatronic Elvis, and it was just the torso. 
So it was like from the top, it'd be like, you know, do the, all the Elvis moves. And it had cheekbones that moved and eyebrows that moved. And it was equal parts horrifying and equal parts hilarious. Uh, we actually gave it to someone as a, as a, like a joke Christmas present one time. Uh, we gave him Elvis. Uh, it was disgusting. <laughs> we tried so hard with that house. I mean, you wouldn't believe the stuff that we did. There was this like, you know, there was this promise that we, you know, if we, if we wanted to, we could buy it if we, like, if we got down the, the line. And so we were like, you know what? He's willing to, to pay for renovations. We just have to do them. So I was ripping out toilets and, and putting up drywall, ripping out carpet, installing new floors. Like I was doing everything that I possibly could to make, you know, to put lipstick on this pig. I was trying so hard, and we tried, we tried, we tried. But after a while, as much work as we put it in the house, we could not get rid of the smell of, you know, old cigarettes and mouse urine and bleach, which is a horrible combination. <laughs> this house could have been so nice. It had everything that, it, you know, all the bones that it needed to, to be nice. But over time, this woman had just allowed all of this stuff to come inside of the church, or inside of her house, I'm sorry. All this stuff to come inside of her house. All of this garbage and junk that didn't belong there. And after a while, it became completely unlivable. I think it was like maybe 11 months, maybe a year after we said, you know what, the free, the free rent is just not worth it. We moved out. After all that work, we were like, it's not worth it. Let's move on. As I was reflecting back on uh, what we in my house call the mouse house, uh, if you come to our, our house at Christmas time and you look at our Christmas tree, we have an ornament of a mouse, and it's to remind us of the, our time in the mouse house. And my niece, uh, Haley, uh, she lived with us at the time, and she reminded me this morning that we moved from the mouse house to what we call the raccoon house because the next house had raccoons. Anyway, <laughs> it was a whole thing. Okay. <laughs> but as I was reflecting on our time in the mouse house and everything and how much promise it had, it could have been exactly what we needed. It had so much potential to be exactly what a young couple in ministry needed. Free housing, a safe place to, to start a family, do all that it had all of the bones that we needed. But because of the stuff that was let in, it became unlivable for us. And as I was reflecting on that, I couldn't help but draw parallels between the mouse house and the current state of the American church. I'm gonna get a little deep today. I'm gonna go to a spot that's gonna be a little uncomfortable. Um, I only get so many opportunities to preach, so I'm gonna make you squirm while I can. <laughs> Thank you. The American church has so much promise. It has the ability to be exactly what people need. People who are just, who, who are looking for that lifeline. Looking for something to show them the God they desperately need. The church has the opportunity to be that. But over the years, the church has let in garbage and junk that doesn't belong inside of it. And they've neglected it. 
They've ignored how much stuff was piling up. And now the church has become unlivable for generations of people. I say generations, a lot of it I'm talking about my generation. You look at the deconstruction movement that's moving, sweeping through my generation, and it's alarming. 59% of millennials who grow up in church walk away from the church, walk away from their faith. 59%. That's almost six out of every 10. We have an awesome youth group, and if you look at our youth group, they're all sitting like right over here. It's, hor yeah. <laughs> it's horrifying to think that only four out of every 10 might stay in church. That's a terrifying statistic. And you say, well, maybe they're being pulled to other religions or maybe they're being pulled because of, you know, to atheism or, or Gnosticism because of, of colleges and things like that. But if you look at the other statistics that's, that show how much those things have grown in the same time span, it's a fraction of a percentage. So that means that generations of people are leaving the church and they're going nowhere. They're not becoming atheists. They're not becoming Gnostics or agnostics. They're not becoming, uh, you know, uh, going to another religion. They're just going to nothing. It's alarming what's happened to the church. I talk to a lot of young Christians I talk to them about what their issues are with the church. And so many times it's not Christ. It's so many times it's not even what the Bible says. More often than, than not, their complaint is with the church itself. Now I want to clarify something. When I say church, I'm not talking about this church in particular. I'm talking about capital C church across the country. I can't speak for the worldwide church. I don't, I'm not familiar with the worldwide church. I'm talking about the American church. They say it's full of gossip and hypocrisy and slander and fighting and hate. And their solution is to walk away. And you say, hey, you might want to say, hey, you know what? They're just a bunch of sissy hipsters. They just can't handle it. And so they're walking away because of that. But we cannot write it off as that. We can't. They're not leaving because they can't cut it. They're leaving because they've grown up reading the word. They've grown up hearing the Bible stories. Being taught what the church should look like. And then when they look up from the Bible and they look at what the, the actual church that they're a part of, they say, that doesn't look like what the Bible says. And so they claim hypocrisy and they write it off, they, they close the door to the chapter of their life and they walk away and they abandon the body of Christ. And honestly, I can see their perspective. I've grown up in the church. My entire life has been spent in the church. I've seen the horror stories of church gossip. I've seen Christians arguing and name calling on social media. I've seen fighting amongst believers. I've seen idolatry. I've seen a moral fall of leader after leader after leader. I've seen YouTube videos of full churches of thousands of people gathered together on a Sunday morning, just like today. 
And instead of worshiping Jesus, they're chanting, let's go Brandon, which if you don't know is a euphemism for cursing out our president. And I, don't, I, I, I told you I'm gonna get a little deep here. I really don't care what your thoughts are on, the, on our president. I could care less if you're red or blue or any of that stuff. That has no business in the church. This is a house of prayer. It's a house of worship. One last thing. I have a lot of people that you might say to me, hey, but what he represents is the enemy of what the church says. So we should get mad and we should fight back and we should do all that stuff. I agree, we gotta stand up. But Jesus told us that we need to fight our enemy. No, we need to love our enemy and we need to pray for those who persecute us. Because my fists can only go so far, but my prayers go straight to heaven. I can see where they're coming from. But I disagree with their solution of walking away. Because the church is the bride of Christ. And Jesus loves his bride. He adores his bride. It's the apple of his eye. He cherishes it. Flaws and all, Jesus cherishes the bride of Christ. And so if Jesus cherishes the bride of Christ, then I'm gonna love the bride of Christ. If Jesus says, I will love them despite their flaws, then I'm gonna love the church despite their flaws. However, as we talk about so much here at River of Life, love does not leave someone in the place that they are. It calls them to what they can be. We need to love the church enough to see its deficiencies and to rise up and to lead it back into its purpose, which is to be the reflection of Christ to the world, an accurate reflection of Christ to the world. The church once was a beautiful picture of a community of believers, all gathered to get together with the same set of values, moving forward, trying to, to, to be that light in the darkness. But over time, like the mouse house, stuff began to gather, garbage began to accumulate, and we neglected it. And now it's become unlivable. I don't believe we have to walk away from the church. The answer is not deconstruction. The answer is revival. And I believe it can happen with my whole heart I believe the church, the American church, can turn back to God. I believe it with my whole heart because it's happened before. And that's the story I want to talk about today. It's the story of the greatest revival in the Old Testament, the longest revival in the Old Testament. It started in darkness, and it watched as the people of God turned their hearts back to God and turned it back to purity. Let's read about that today. Second Chronicles chapter nine or 29, I'm sorry, verse one. It says, Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors to the temple 
and he repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east side. And he said, listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all the defilement from the sanctuary. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time together that we have today, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that you'd help me to effectively communicate your word, Lord God. That it would not be my words, Lord. It would not be my purpose. It would not be my agenda, Lord God. But it would be your word that rings true today, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear what the word of the Lord wants to say, Lord. I pray that we would feel conviction, Lord God. Not so that we can feel bad about ourselves, but so that we can change, to rise up and change and live out the calling that you've placed on our life, Lord God. Move on us today, Holy Spirit. Revival come in Jesus' name, amen. A little context to the story here. Hezekiah becomes king when he's 25 years old. And Hezekiah's father and his ancestors had just completely let the the people of God go. Like all of the worship had gone in the dumpster. They had closed up the door to the temple. Incense had stopped burning. Sacrifices had stopped being made. Idolatry was rampant all throughout Israel. There's idols in the high places and they're worshiping sacred stones and Asherah poles have been, have been uh, erected all throughout Israel and Asherah poles is, is something that was like a Canaanite form of worship. It was worship to their God. All of this stuff is happening and, and Hezekiah becomes king and he has a choice to make. He could turn the people back to God or, or he can let them keep continue going in the mess that they've created. But Hezekiah had grown up and he had seen what had happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. At this time, the kingdoms have been divided. And he had watched as the same idolatry that now was poisoning his kingdom, poisoned the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. He watched as the Assyrians came in and destroyed them and carried them off into exile. He had seen what idol worship unchecked had led to, and it led to destruction. And so Hezekiah has a choice to make. I can keep the status quo, and I can just keep us going down the same direction. I mean, after all, the temple doors are closed. We haven't worshiped in years. There's no point in going back there. It's not what we thought it was going to be. Or he can rise up, and he can lead the people of God back into their purpose to be a reflection of God to the world. Hezekiah Hezekiah rises up. He rises up and the first thing that he does to fix what is going on is he fixes the doors. And I found that so interesting as I was going through through this, this story. The first thing that he does, like, I would have like gone and gotten a whip or something. You know, hey, we're going to get this thing cracking. You know, get it going, get right. But he doesn't do that. He goes and he fixes the doors. Why? Let's talk about that. A door's purpose is to keep, keep the bad stuff out and to let the good stuff in. Hezekiah tells the Levites to go into the temple and remove everything that defiled the sanctuary. Think about that. This is the temple of the Lord, the same temple built by Solomon. It was extravagant. It was made to worship the God of Israel. 
And here Hezekiah is telling the priests, hey, you need to go back in. I'm opening the door. You need to go back in and remove everything that's defiling the God of Israel that's in his house. And you say, well, how much stuff could there possibly have been? One or two idols? It took them 16 days to remove all of the defilement out of the temple. It's amazing that sometimes, it's amazing that sometimes we don't even realize how much stuff we're letting in. Like it starts maybe with one thing and then another thing. And sooner or later, we turn around and we're like, oh my goodness, I'm a hoarder. Remove all the defilement from the temple. Hezekiah knew that the doors weren't working. They were letting bad stuff, uh, they, they were keeping, or they were letting bad stuff in and they were keeping good stuff out. They were broken. They were letting in all forms of worldly worship and they were also keeping people out. 29.7 says they shut the doors of the portico. That was like the porch that led kind of into the temple. And they put out the lamps and they, they did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. Worship had completely stopped. In, in that time, it wasn't like, like now where I can bend my knee, whether I'm here at the altar or whether I'm at home in my bedroom. I, can, I have access to God because Jesus gave us the access when he died on the cross and the, and the veil was torn. But they didn't have that. They had to go to the temple. In order to give thanks to God, they had to present an offering. In order to, to repent, they had to present an offering. In order to, to lift up praises, they had to go light incense. It's, it's how they worshiped. And yet even the seeker, even the person who's hungry for God and says, I need you, Jesus, or, or, or God, I need you to come at your feet. They couldn't even go and worship God. The doors had been shut. The doors weren't just letting bad stuff in. They were keeping the people from coming. Hezekiah knew this. He knew that the doors are supposed to keep the world out and they're supposed to let the seeker in. Church, we need to be open to the seeker. Hezekiah, before he even fixes the door, what's he do? He opens them up. That's gotta be our first priority when we're, when we're in revival. It's gotta be the first priority that we're opening the door to the seeker. Now, I'm not talking about a physical door here. You know, our doors are broken all the time here at this church. <laughs> Bob is laughing. I don't know how many times have we fixed the doors of this church. I'm not talking about physical, physical doors. I'm talking about the door to our family, the door to the kingdom of God. It's so easy for us to lift, put our nose up at people that are coming in and to judge people by what they're wearing or how they smell or where their background they're from the sin that they've gone through, the sin that they're currently in. It's so easy for us to turn our nose up and to, and to not let people get close and to draw in and become part of the family of God for so many different reasons. And yeah, we don't say it. Yeah, we, you know, so often or not, we would, you know, we'd be like, yeah, no, everyone's welcome. You know, until you have to smell, sit next to the smelly guy. And all of a sudden it gets uncomfortable. The door needs to be open to the seeker. The Bible says there's two qualifications to be a member of the bride. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. Two things 
That's your, that's your, your, your price of admission into the kingdom of God. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. Uh, that comes from Psalm 51, 17. I like the way that the NLT says it. It says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit, and you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. He won't reject the contrite heart. He won't reject the broken spirit. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no dress code. In the kingdom of heaven, they don't care how much money you make. They don't care if you're pretty or ugly or fat or skinny or black or white or anything in between. The price of admission to the kingdom of God is simple. It's a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Jesus talked about this broken spirit in Matthew 5, 3. He said, blessed is the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. The, spirit, the, the, the poor in spirit, to be poor in spirit is to be actively aware of your need for God. It's the heart that's gone into the world and, and drank from the cup of the world and constantly comes back thirsty. Time after time is left wanting by what the world has. And finally, they come to the place and they say, I can't do it on my own anymore. I know that there has to be a source that will leave me, uh, th uh, that will, that will uh, sustain me a source that never runs dry. And so they come to Jesus, the only source, the, the living water that never runs dry. They come to Jesus, that heart, that's poor in spirit. It's the heart that says, God, I need you. And a contrite heart is a heart of repentance. It's someone who's ready to recognize that they have made mistakes, that they've missed the mark, that they've sinned against God, and most importantly, that they're ready to turn back to him. Repentance is a two-part process. It's so often that repentance is, turn, is associated with the word turn. And it's because it is a two-part process. I love how one writer put it. He put it like this. He said, we repent with our mind, or repent with your mind and turn with your actions. There's a process that happens mentally and spiritually where we come before Jesus and we say, God, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I'm so sorry for what I've allowed in my life. But then if it's just be, is that, it's, that's just a, an apology. God's not looking for an apology. He's looking for repentance. Repentance includes the act of, of turning away from sin. I've made up my mind, God, I'm so sorry for what I've done, but now I'm going to turn and I'm gonna go towards you. I'm gonna leave the former things behind and I'm gonna go towards you. That's what God desires, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And if we're not letting in a broken spirit and a contrite heart, then the door is broken. But just as much as the door needs to let the, the seeker in, it needs to be closed off to the things of the world. Now we live in the modern day. You know, Jesus didn't have, you know, an electric Nord stage three, believe it or not, when he was having his services. He didn't have lights and things like that. And you say, well, hey, you're letting in all the world. Well, we live in modern times. So there has to be a line that's drawn where, how, how do we continue to move forward without letting in the world? Well, we have to know what, part of the world not to let in. That's where I'll say. 
And in order to figure that out, let's start with looking at the things that God hates. Yes, the Bible has a list of things that God hates. It's found in Proverbs 6, 16. It says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Man, I can't help it when I look at that list. That sounds exactly like what the people who are leaving the church, what they accuse us of. Haughty eyes, that's pride. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to someone who's leaving in the church and their complaint is that it's pride in the church, pride in leadership. Haughty eyes particularly is talking about the type of pride that would turn their nose up at someone who's lesser than them. A lying tongue. We just got through a series called No Lies, talking about you know, how we have to stop believing the lies that have infiltrated the church. Hands that shed innocent blood. I mean, you look around and you're like, hey, we're not doing that. But I tell you what, as I look across the American church, I see a lot of people who represent God who are preying on the innocent. It's detestable to him. a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that rush into evil. I find it so interesting that he's describing a body. I mean, we're called to be the body of Christ. So many times in scripture, we're told that we are the body of Christ. This passage in Proverbs 6 is God saying, this is what I don't want my body to look like. This is what I don't want it to look like. And I'm heartbroken as I think I'm a part of the American church. I'm heartbroken that as I look at this, at this scripture, I realize the body that we've created is exactly what God didn't want. The body of Christ is supposed to be made up of humility and not Pride. It's supposed to be full of truth, not lies. It's, it's, it's hands that comfort, not hands that shed uh, blood. It's, it's, it's feet that don't rush into evil, but, are, is, but we're supposed to be slow to anger and abounding in love. The church is supposed to be made up of words that edify each other, not tear each other down. And the church is supposed to be marked by people who are peacekeepers, not people who stir up conflict. The door is broken, man. It's, it's shut, it's off the hinge. Like it is broken and it's in desperate need of repair. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to fix the door. But what's our role in this? It's not a physical door. If it was a physical door, I'd just tell Bob to go fix it. It's a spiritual door. It's a metaphorical door. Our role is to stand at the door. We're supposed to be gatekeepers. We're supposed to be like bouncers at the hippest nightclub in heaven. We stand at the door. 
and we got our list. If your name's not on the list, you're not welcome into the church. Now, last night, I, uh, I was like personifying what's not allowed in the list. I was saying like, pride, you're not allowed in. Slander, you're not allowed in. We're going to throw you out. My wife told me that sounded like I was saying we're going to throw people out of the church. So I'm not saying like actual physical people. I'm talking about the things that God detests. We're supposed to stand at the door with our list. And I had this vision uh, as I was preparing this message. I had this vision of, 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 of us standing at the door and pride coming up. Pride saying, hey, I want to get into the family of God. And us checking the list. No, nope, sorry, your name's not on the list. You can go away now. Go ahead. Slander coming up. Slander coming up to, the, to the, the, the door that leads into the family of God. And us standing there boldly with our list, knowing our list. Hi, my name's Slander. I'd like to get into the family of God. I'd just like to take, take root there. No, I'm sorry, your name's not on the list. You can go away now. A contrite heart comes up and we're like, oh, yep, your name's on the list. It's at the top of the list. There's only two things on the list, but it's at the top of the list. You're welcome in. Contrite heart, you're welcome in. Broken spirit, you're welcome in. Oop, while I was talking to contrite heart, gossip slipped behind me. So now I'm the bouncer, so I'm going to go grab a, a, a gossip by its pants and I'm going to go throw it out on the curb. Because we need to get bold, church. This is the house of God. This is the family of God. And the things that God detests should never have any place in the family of God. We need to get bold with it. If we want to see revival take over the church and sweep through our city and our nation and our world, we need to start by fixing the door. We need to be sure that the door to the family of God is only letting in the seeker and it's keeping out the things of the world. The next thing Hezekiah does is he, he gathers the Levites. He gathers them together. He says, he brought in the priests and the Levites and he assembled them in the square on the east side and he said, listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now. The next thing that he does is he, he calls on the priests and the Levites. And why is this important to us? Because we are Levites. Now, in the Old Testament, you had to be born into priesthood. It wasn't like you were, uh, you know, you couldn't just earn it. You know, could go to school and like be like, hey, you know, got my degree. Now it's time for me to be a priest. No, you had to be born into it. And yet in 1 Peter 2, 9, it says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He calls us a royal priesthood, even though we haven't been born into it physically, but Jesus says we have to die to ourselves and we have to be born again. Church, can I tell you that we're, we're born again? We're not the same anymore. We have been given, given a new identity in Jesus Christ. And part of that new identity is as a royal priest. 
We've been born into that line. And so when Hezekiah is calling on the priest, when he's gathering the priest and he's saying, consecrate yourself, I believe that the same spirit that lived and existed inside Hezekiah that was calling and saying, come and consecrate yourself, I believe it's talking to us today. It's talking to the church across the country. It's talking to the church. And it's saying, priesthood, rise up. Rise up, priest. And consecrate yourself back to God. Part of our new role and our new responsibilities is this. One article that I read on on priesthood said this. A priest primarily to... uh, Priests' primary two roles were to stay in contact with God in the holy place and to help people remain pure. We are royal priests. We have to be familiar with his presence. Part of that priest's role was to be, you know, in contact and there in his presence, to exist there in his presence. And we need to remain attached to the presence of God. We can't do this whole, you know, come to church and stick our hands up in the air and worship and then walk out the doors and go back and live the life that we want to live. That doesn't lead to revival. That leads to a mouse house. If we want revival, then our connection with the presence of God has has to come and go with us. It's not like the times when we had to come to the temple and present a sacrifice. I can present a sacrifice in my car if I want to. I can remain connected with God everywhere I go if I want to. I just have to keep the lines of communication open. I can't shut the door to what God is speaking to me. We have to, uh, he who has ears to hear, Jesus said, if you got ears and, you, and it's not just anybody that has ears, do you have ears to hear? We need to be open, keep the contact open with God, but then we have to make it our goal in life to help each other, our brothers and sisters in the family of God, help each other remain pure. It's not about perfection. It's not about never making a mistake. It's about picking each other up when we fall. It's about when someone is broken saying, hey, I'm so, I, I see you there and I'm not gonna leave you on the ground. I'm gonna extend my hand. Come back up. Come back with me into the presence of the Lord. That's where you can be restored. We're a royal priests, church. We need to start living out that calling. Hezekiah called on them and he, he said, you need to consecrate yourself. To consecrate means to devote irrevocably to the worship of God. It's the renouncing of my old life It's me saying, God, I know I've tried. It's the broken spirit. I've tried so hard to live out my life and I realize that I'm in desperate need for you. So I'm going to renounce my old life. I'm gonna die to myself and I'm gonna set off my dreams and my purposes and my desires and my needs and my wants. I'm gonna take everything that I am that makes me, me, and I'm gonna set it off. I'm gonna die to myself. The old me is dead. And now I'm going to pick up the life that you have provided for me. I'm going to pick up, pick up your values and your purposes and your desires and your needs and your wants. And I'm going to put them on me in my new life. And I have been called a new creation in God. 
Consecration can be summed up for us by Colossians 3, 2 through 10. It says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I love that. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because these, the wrath of God is coming. You used, uh, you used to walk in the ways, in these ways, in the life that you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of, of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Filthy language from your lips. Let's say that again. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with all of its practices and you have put on a new self which is being renewed in the knowledge it renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. As we follow the instructions of Colossians 2, dying to ourselves, putting off everything, all of the old ways that we used to walk in, as we set those aside, Colossians 2 says this, tells us to pick up the new life that we have in Christ that we're being remade. We're being remade in his image, in the image of our creator. Not, not just in the image of our creator, but we're, made, we're being re remade in knowledge, in knowledge of God. The amazing thing is that a consecrated church can only be made up of consecrated people. The incredible thing about every one of us taking off what makes us you know, you know, our pride and our, our desires and our dreams and all that stuff. The amazing thing about us doing that is at the same time that we set aside differences, we're picking up things that we share in common. We set aside what makes us different and we pick up the values that we share in common, which is the values of God. There's no way that we can not have unity in the body if we die to ourselves and we pick up what makes us the same. Because it's no longer my dream that I'm chasing. It's God's dream. And you're chasing God's dreams too. So that means we're heading in the same direction. It's no longer my priorities that I'm, that I'm trying to live out. It's, it's God's priori priorities. And you set your priorities down too. You're going towards God's priorities now too. And now that we share the same set of values, we, and we're consecrated back to God, we've, we've laid down our old self, we picked up our new self, now we can go consecrate the church because now we have the same direction for where it's headed. Hezekiah calls on the Levites and he says, listen to me, Levites, come together, go and consecrate yourself. Return your heart back to God, the place that it belongs. And then he says, get up and consecrate the church. Consecrate the temple. And that's just what they do. It says they tear down the high places. They tear down idols, starting with the high place. The high places is, is an idol that is anything that sits at a higher priority than God in our life. For them, they had physically put idols in the high places that belong to God. And so Hezekiah goes and he tears them down, tears down the high places. In church, we need to tear, tear down the high places Money, success, fame, comfort, relationships, religion, any of the stuff, any of, of the things that we've placed at a higher priority than God and a relationship with God, 
We need to tear it down. It has no, bl- no place in the church. It can leave. It can go. The church is supposed to be a house, of, a house of prayer and a house of worship. So anything that exists that above God can go. The next thing they do is they chop down the Asherah poles. Again, the Asherah pole was a, a symbol of worship uh, to the Canaanite god Asherah. An Asherah pole to us is the influence of worldly culture creeping into the worship of God's people. The Israelites were existing in the, the land that used to belong to the Canaanite people. It used to be there. But instead of following God's instructions and, and removing the land of the Canaanites before they moved in, they let them stay there. And over time and over time, they began to adopt the, the ways of the world, the ways of, of the people around them, the worship of the Canaanite people. And now they're worshiping God, but they're also erecting these Asherah poles. The church does the same thing today. We call it being culturally relevant. We say, well, we want to be culturally relevant. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to uh, you know, uh, do this this way. And it's to, you know, grab people's attention. Grab the world's attention or we're going to bring them in. No, we're not called to do that, man. We're called to worship God. It's not our job to draw people to Christ. It's our job to, 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 to at least it's not our job to do it, uh, you know, creatively. God can do that all on his own. We're not the ones that grab their hearts. God's the one that grabs their hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts. Our job is to just be an accurate representation of who Christ is. If we can model who Christ is, if we can be a reflection of who he is, then God can grab their hearts on his own. We don't need gimmicks. We just need worship. We need to to, to be consecrated to him. We need to chop down the Asherah pole that we've erected, the Asherah pole that we've constructed in the name of cultural relevancy. We need to sever the hold that culture has on the church. The last type of idol that they, that they tear down as they're consecrating the church is he smashes the bronze snake of Moses. The bronze snake of Moses. Now, if you don't know what this is, in the Old Testament, how are we doing on time? Oh, I'm good. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was uh, a time where they were complaining a lot. The Israelites were complaining in the desert, which I know is like all the time. But they were complaining a lot about how, what God had provided for them. And so um, they, as they were complaining, God's like, hey, you know what? You really want to complain? All right, here's some poisonous snakes. And he sends some poisonous snakes amongst their camp. And real quickly, they get the point. They're like, ah, we shouldn't have complained. And they run to Moses and they're like, I'm sorry, Moses. We knew that we were wrong. We shouldn't have complained. Can you, can you do something? So Moses prays to God and God says, hey, uh, make this bronze snake and set it on a pole. And anybody that looks at the snake, uh, 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 they'll be healed um, if they're bitten by a snake. And they were. He, he does it. He, he makes the bronze snake and he lifts it up real high. Anyone that's bitten by the snake uh, can just look at the snake and they're healed. The bronze snake represented God's mercy on his people. The fact that he said, listen, I get that you're complaining and, and, and here's you know, stuff to get you right back on track, um, but ultimately I'm going to show mercy on you. It represented God and his mercy to the people of God. But somewhere between the time of Moses when that happened and the time of Hezekiah, the people actually began to worship the bronze snake. They were no longer, no longer worshiping 
what it represented, which was God. They were worshiping the snake. It says that they were lighting incense. Again, the incense represents the praises of God's people. They were lighting incense to the bronze snake. This last type of idol is something that doesn't get talked about much. It's someone or something that starts off as godly or holy and it represents what, or something that represents what God has done or is doing. But over time, people become more infatuated with creation rather than its creator. The bronze snake of Moses, it's about making idols out of movements of God. Paul experienced this type of idolatry in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, verse four through seven, it says, are you not walking in the way of man? That's your first clue that, uh, that you're in idolatry. Are you not walking in the way of man? For when one of you says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you, are, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed, as the Lord has assigned to each his role. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. As I read about that, as I, as I look at the story of the bronze snake and how the people started to worship it, I think of what we've done with celebrity culture in the church. I see all the time people, I belong, oh, I belong to this church, or, or uh, I don't go to church, but I just watch this one YouTube video, and I follow this pastor. He's my pastor. He doesn't know me, and he has no idea what's going on in my life, and he can never actually you know, try and speak life into me or correct me when I'm wrong, but he's my pastor. It, we just made celebrities out of these people, and I don't blame them. It's not Stephen Furtick's fault. It's not Joel Olstein's fault. I believe they're just doing what God has called them to do. It's our, it's the, our fault. It's all our fault for propping them up higher than they ever deserve. As we watch all of these you know, leaders fall and fall and fall and fall and fall, you'd think we'd get the point that they're not supposed to be up that high. They're just men like us. They have the role. They're doing their role. But we're so attracted to the, to the work of men. We're so uh, attracted to what people are doing. And even if they're doing it as something that started off from God or something that is done from the place of God or for God, we get more attracted to the creation than we do to the creator. Celebrity culture has no place in the church. It's bad for us and it's bad for the people that we're propping up. No one is designed to be worshiped above God or in the place of God. We need to tear down the idols. We fix the door. We know exactly what should come in and we, act, and we know what should stay out. We've consecrated ourselves. We, you know, we've, we've set off our old ways and we've picked up our new self and, we, and we've picked up God's values and, and we're going in the direction of God. And now we've come into the church and we're tearing down idols. 
We're, we're uh, you know, tearing down the high, high places and we're smashing sacred stones and we're chopping down Asherah poles. We're smashing uh, uh, the snake, the bronze snake of Moses. You notice how violent those words are? I'm not calling like for violence uh, against any person at all. But I'm calling for violence against sin. Bible says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. It doesn't say tolerate what is evil. It doesn't say put up with it because, you know, after a while they're going to get their stuff together. It says, hate what's evil. Church, we need, our blood needs to boil. I imagine Hezekiah's blood was boiling as he thought about how far the people of God drifted from the place that they were supposed to be. As he's thinking about, geez, what did my, my predecessors get us into? We've drifted so far from our purpose. We were supposed to be a reflection of God to the world. And now, and now we look exactly like the world. I imagine Hezekiah's blood boiling as he picked up the bronze snake of Moses. Now, I, Moses was a pretty important figure if to the Israelites. This wouldn't have been a big deal. It's not like he's, you know, smashing some vase that some, you know, person made. This is something that Moses made. It had existed for hundreds of years. And Hezekiah's blood is boiling as he's saying, look what you've turned this into. And he's smashing it. He's tearing down the, uh, the, the high places. He's upset. He's mad. Church, we need to get upset. Not with each other, with sin, with evil, with all the stuff that has come inside the church that doesn't belong. We need to rise up, church. Royal priesthood, rise up. Consecrate yourself and then go into the church and, and, and take inventory. Look in the high places. What idols have we placed above God? Look at, at what uh, uh, Asherah poles have we constructed? Where has culture taken a, a, a hold of the church that we can say, I'm chopping it off. I'm severing the arm of culture into our church. You have no place here. The high places are, are torn down. We're smashing the sacred stones. I tried to find something that represents sacred stones, but I just moved on. Um, but we're smashing those too. I just don't know what they are. And we're taking any part. We're taking the, the bronze snake of Moses, anything that we've begun to worship, even if it's a move of God. And we're saying, God, it's not about what they've done. They're just water in the seed. Only you can make things grow. Let's be more impressed with the, the God who makes things grow and not the person who's planting the seed. Amen. I love how this story finishes. I promise. I'm, just, I'm almost done. I'm just going to read this passage here. Verse 27, chapter 29, verse 27. The temple's consecrated. All the defilement's been taken out. The people, the Levites have consecrated themselves. And now Hezekiah gathers the assembly together. It says, Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offering on the altar. As the offering began, singing to the Lord began also, accompanied by trumpets and instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly bowed in worship while musicians played and the trumpets sounded. And all this continued until the sacrifice of the burnt offering was completed. 
And when the offerings were finished, the king and everyone present with him knelt down and worshiped. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites, praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph, Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and bowed down and worshiped. This is like the third time in three verses that they've bowed down and worshiped. And Hezekiah said, you have now dedicated yourself to the Lord. Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings and all whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. Hezekiah turned a church, a group of people, the people of God, that were so far, they were so far from what they were supposed to be that the temple's doors were shut, incense no longer burned, uh, sacrifices weren't being made to God. They were completely in the dark. But they were singing the praises. Hezekiah began to sing the praises of the God who takes you from darkness and into marvelous light. He called on the Levites, consecrate yourself. And in a short span of time, he took a church, he took a people of God that was so far from God and he set them on fire. And it wasn't something that Hezekiah did. It was the spirit of revival. It started with Hezekiah saying, yes, Lord. I'll make the decision. I'll make the decision to turn back to you. It will start with me. It starts with me. Put it on me, God. It starts with me. Church, God is looking for some Hezekiahs to rise up. He's looking for some people who are willing to take inventory of the church and to say, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect. I know I've made mistakes. But I got a broken spirit and I got a contrite heart. And God, if you're willing to use me, use me. I'm ready to consecrate my life. I'm ready to lay down everything that I have and to pick up yourself, your values. I'm ready to run your direction, God. God is looking for some Hezekiahs to say yes and to start turning the church back to him. To start setting the church on fire for God. For God. For to, to create an atmosphere where people worship God and when they're done worshiping God, they worship God again. And when they're done worshiping God that time, then they bow back down and they worship him again. So my question for you today is are you ready to rise? Are you ready to start cleaning house? I'm going to ask that you be bold today. If you say, I recognize that I'm a royal priest and that I, I'm going to play a part 
and turning the church back to God. Would you be bold enough to just stand up right where you're at right now? For the world to see, or at least the church. Say, I'm bold enough. I'm ready for the church to, to, to go back to God, to run back to God. We are a royal priesthood church. Let us sing the praises of the God who, taught, who brought us out of darkness into marvelous light. Let us lead the church. Let us rise, consecrate ourselves. It starts with us. Be willing to say, it starts with me. And then move forward and turn the church back to God. Let's pray. Father, I believe it is going to happen, Lord. I believe that revival is coming, but it's not going to come until we take, uh, we take ownership of it, Lord God. Until we see the church for what it is, we see its deficiencies, and we recognize that we're going to love it beyond its deficiencies. We're going to rise up as a royal priesthood in your name. We're going to rise up and we're going to lead the church back into what it's supposed to be, a reflection of your character and who you are, Lord God. We're not going to, to let anything that you detest in the church, Lord God. All the slander can go. All the hate can go. All the, the, the conflict can go. God, the gossip can go pride can go. We will not let it in the house of the Lord, Lord God. We will stand as gatekeepers at the gate and we will not allow it in this church. We will not allow it in our family. It has no place, Lord God, but in its place, we will be a people who are humble. We will be a people who are loving. We will be a people who comfort the broken. We will be a people who are slow to anger. We will rise up, Lord God, and we will be an image of who you are to the culture around us. And instead of culture having a grip on us, Lord God, we make up our mind today, Lord God, that we will have an effect on culture instead of culture having an effect on us. God, I believe it with all my heart. I believe that revival will come when we stir up and we rise up and we say, not for me, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will stay firm. We will go towards you, God. We have set off our old self. We've picked up your ways and we're running towards you, God. God, we believe it. And I pray it over every heart, Lord God. I pray for boldness over every heart that stood I pray, Lord God, that you'd fill them with the same spirit that filled Hezekiah. That they'd tear down the idols. That they'd set their heart towards you. Hey, thanks for listening. River of Life is a ministry in East Missoula, Montana. We exist for one purpose to make Jesus famous by showing his love to the lost, broken, and hurting. For more information, you can check us out online at rolmt.com. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus today, we'd love to talk to you about what comes next. Shoot us an email at nextstep at rolmt.com. Thanks.